gentlemen, welcome to Bard Flies, a podcast about learning to be a better judge of character. This week, an examination of the question, does all's well that ends well actually end well? I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 28, Helen of Ploy. In the case of four-month-old Cason, Dustin, you are the father! James, would you care to give us a plot summary of this comedy? Well, Will, our play opens in France, a realm ruled by a king in poor health, full of young men who are eager to win glory and war in Italy, and a young woman who is just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. That girl is Helena, the daughter of a famed and recently deceased physician in the service of the Countess of Rossillon, who has taken in Helena as her ward. The boy is the Countess's son, Bertram, who is heading off to serve in the King's Court in Paris with his braggadocious associate Parolis, much to Helena's dismay. The Countess quickly deduces that Helena secretly loves her son. She encourages Helena to follow Bertram to court and offer to use the medical skills she learned from her father to heal the king, whose doctors have told him that his fistula can't be healed. Gross. Helena makes a spirited presentation to the skeptical king when she arrives at court, eventually persuading him, against his initially better judgment, to accept her treatment on one condition, that if she succeeds, he will guarantee her marriage with any one of his vassals that she chooses. Needless to say, the king recovers rapidly under Helena's administrations. He gives Helena an engagement ring and offers her an array of suitors, from which she, of course, chooses Bertram. Bertram does not take this well, declaring that he does not wish to take a poor physician's daughter as a wife and loudly proclaiming that he cannot love her. The king smacks him down with royal authority, eventually cowing Bertram into accepting the marriage. But Bertram has other plans. Rather than stay to consummate the marriage or even kiss his new bride, Bertram makes haste to Tuscany, where he and Parolas plan to fight for the Duke of Florence's army. Before he absconds, Bertram sends two letters off, one to his mother, explaining that he has ditched Helena, and one to Helena, stating that, Till I have no wife, I have nothing in France. She'd only get him to truly be her husband, he writes, if she removes the ancestral ring from his finger and bears his child, conditions which he thinks are impossible. The Countess virtually disowns her son in favor of Helena, who disguises herself as a pilgrim and heads off to Tuscany to get one over on Bertram and lock down her husband. When Helena arrives in Tuscany, she discovers that Bertram is now a war hero and is trying to seduce a young woman named Diana, the daughter of the widow Capulet, who takes the disguised pilgrim, i.e. Helena, in. Helena eventually reveals herself to the widow and suggests a way to save Diana's honor and to win back her husband. The old bed trick, familiar to listeners of this podcast from the play Measure for Measure, which will involve Diana giving in to Bertram's advances and meeting him for sex. Then, under cover of darkness, just before the deed begins, Helena will replace Diana and consummate her marriage with a stupid and possibly legally blind Bertram. Prior to the betting, two of Bertram's comrades, the brothers Dumaine, have grown tired of Parolles' obnoxious behavior and dishonesty and decide to play a prank on him that will reveal his perfidy. They send him on a fool's errand into the woods and capture him while disguised as the enemy. In their interrogations, they prompt him to slander his fellow officers in front of an audience that includes Bertram, 
leading to Brolis's dismissal. I just have to make a side note here, Will. This uh, this plot moment feels familiar. Somehow, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where I might have heard this before. That evening, when they meet for their assignation, Diana persuades a reluctant Bertram to exchange his ancestral ring for the one she wears, which is, in fact, the engagement ring the king gave to Helena. The improbable switch works as planned, leaving Helena pregnant and Bertram none the wiser. Helena, Diana, and the widow Capulet head off to Paris to tell the king everything, but not before Helena spreads the word that she has died to ensure that Bertram comes back to France to find a new wife at court. When Bertram gets to court, he quickly finds himself in hot water. When he offers the ring he got from Diana to the daughter of one of the king's courtiers, the king recognizes it as his gift to Helena, and has Bertram clapped in irons on suspicion of murdering his wife. The plot thickens further when a letter from Diana arrives, shortly followed by Diana herself. Diana reveals that Bertram promised to marry her upon the death of Helena. Bertram says that he did no such thing because Diana is a camp-following prostitute. At this point, Helena appears to spring her trap. She reminds Bertram of his letter, which lays out his impossible conditions for returning to her. Then she shows him the ancestral ring and reveals that she is pregnant with his child as a result of the bed trick. A dumbfounded Bertram tells the king, though not Helena, that he assents to the marriage while the king promises Diana her choice of husband and a generous dowry and declares that all's well that ends well. What do you think, Will? Is Maury Povich or Jerry Springer available to mediate? Can we get the results of the paternity test? This does seem to go to demonstrate, as we've talked about many times in this podcast, Will, that Shakespeare's plays either wouldn't have happened or would have been very well served by contemporary counseling techniques. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I've got to say, um, this is prime daytime television. On that point, Will, from the perspective of the daytime television audience, I have a possibly hot take for you. I think Bertram appearing on on Maury Povich might advance to Povich's studio audience. All right? So are, are you ready for a very hot take about this play? Blisteringly hot. My hot take about this play, Will, is that Helena is the villain of All's Well That Ends Well. And that Bertram is the wronged young man. He's... Perhaps misguided, you know, has something to learn in his life, but that Bertram is the wronged victim of this play. So you're saying she's a gold digger? I don't know. I don't think I would go so far as say a gold digger. I think that's that's a little prejudicial. I, I think what I mean about Helena is that she is perhaps overzealous in her pursuit of a man who's not interested in her. I think there's a strong argument to be made here that Helena... Now, admittedly, Bertram's not the nicest guy. I'm not going to say that Bertram treats anyone that well. But I would just note, if I can lay out the case for you, Will, Helena shows up at court. She works her way into the favor of the king. You know, I'm totally sympathized with the king, being glad that his life is saved. I get it. That being said, essentially, Helena tricks the king into coercing Bertram to marry her. That's, you know, that's the first thing. Married, married off against his will to a woman that he's not in love with. And then, later on, in France, Helena tricks Bertram into having sex with someone that 
he doesn't think he's having sex with and he doesn't want to have sex with. So I think there is a strong argument also that Bertram is raped by Helena. So what do you make of my thesis? Well, Dr. it sounds... Dr. Povich. Well, Dr. Povich Quinn. <laughs> yes. Well, I, I suppose... Take a step back here. What you're describing is sort of like fatal attraction without the attraction. It's the sort of Glenn Close character with an overweening interest in uh, the person she's enamored with, and it ultimately ends badly for all parties concerned in that wonderful Michael Douglas Glenn Close film. I think that there's a case for this interpretation, certainly. It's not entirely clear that you're meant to, to really dislike Helena, but a lot more is stated and sort of assumed to be true, advanced about Helena's desirability and her uprightness. It's not really shown to you in any particular way. And there's a great deal of emphasis on honesty in this play. And oddly, Bertram is very honest. He does not want to be with Helena. He does not like Helena. He may be a snob, but he's honestly a snob. If and he's a cad, and up to a certain point, he's a relatively honest uh, and direct cat. Maybe not when he's pursuing other women, but that's a separate question. Helena, on the other hand, is dishonest. She obviously straightforwardly loves Bertram and is maybe a better person than him on several metrics. But she's also willing to contrive to set about this entire plot in motion under false pretenses to ensure that she gets her man which is not a great look. That said, in the text, I'm not sure that it really all comes together with Helena actually being the ultimate villain. I think there's a lot more here, and certainly in the play's resolution, which suggests that Bertram is ultimately a jerk, meant to be understood as a jerk, and uh, ultimately gets his comeuppance in the end. That's at least the way the play feels, but it is a little bit incongruous. Yeah, there's, there's a little bit of a tonal inconsistency here, I, I find, right? And I think, to your point, my reaction reading this play was that it feels like we are dropped into the play from the perspective of being Helena's best friend where the play is structured in such a way that all we ever hear about is how great Helena is. I mean, so for instance, the king is talking about Helena and he says, thy life is dear for all that life can rate, worth name of life and thee hath estimate, youth, beauty, wisdom, courage, all that happiness and prime can happy call. Thou this to hazard needs must intimate, skill infinite or monstrous desperate. So the, the king is very pro Helena. We also have these conversations between the Countess and Lavash, in which the Countess talks about how great Helena is and, you know, how really her son is not worthy of him. I think she also says this directly to Helena, if I'm remembering correctly. It all has the vibe of talking to your friend who's been jilted or even talking to another friend about a third friend who's been jilted and having that conversation go... That person that they're interested in isn't really good enough for them anyways. Right. So it feels like the presentation is prejudiced towards Helena from the get-go. And, and so I, to me, it feels like there's a little bit of, of an inconsistency between that, between the slant of the play 
in terms of how we're presented the characters. Now the characters are talked about and the actual actions that the people in the play are performing. Right. So I think there's definitely something to that. I think one of the challenges here is you have a couple really good speeches that reveal the character's depth of feeling. Specifically, I'm thinking of Helena's description and conversation. Basically, she has a lengthy monologue where she talks about her love for Bertram. That occurs at the beginning, and it sort of fades out of view. Everything in the play starts to become very mechanistic about resolving the basic plot challenge to get her the ring and get her pregnant and then reveal everything at the end. So you sort of lose any emotional depth and you lose why she's interested in Bertram and you lose the opportunity to see any virtues from Helena by the way the story is constructed. Similarly, if anything, Bertram's behavior only gets worse as the play goes on in terms of just seducing and jumping from one woman to another, making false promises. Yes, he's a war hero, but his behavior towards women is shown to be almost uniformly caddish throughout, Mm -hmm. even though I think it is meant to sit somewhat uncomfortably with us that he's being forced into this marriage. I mean, he doesn't even assent to the woman that he's married to at the end. He just responds to the king and says, well, I guess if she can prove that she's got the ring and that she's got my baby. Yeah, yeah. You got me. <laughs> you got me. Yeah, there's a real, uh, you, you sort of talked about the tonal distinction. I think it's also in the way that the plot is constructed, where there's more focus on lining up all the pieces and then in sort of showing maybe why Bertram is resistant to marrying Helena and similarly, why Helena is so fixated on Bertram in the first place. In some ways, you can see a way to rewrite this or to change some things around or with good casting to sort of overcome the inconsistencies. You could cast somebody who is very ugly as Helena, for instance, and somebody who is very attractive and vain as Bertram, and that would make a certain degree of sense to explain mm-hmm. the degree of antipathy and, and everything else. But it's very hard to like visualize and understand from the text of the play itself why their feelings and why the conflict exists in a way beyond just sort of asserting, well, I don't love her. Well, let me ask you a question about this, Will, which is Bertram's stated reason for his lack of interest in Helen is about her essentially being a parvenu. She's a physician's daughter. She's yeah, not I a think, member of the nobility. Yeah, I think he expressly says, he says, I know her well. She had her breeding at my father's charge. A poor physician's daughter, my wife, disdain rather corrupt me ever. The stated reason in, in the play, it isn't even that he doesn't love her, although I think it's obvious that he doesn't, but the stated reason on his part is class consciousness, right? Class snobbery. Though that is sort of a tossed-off line, in a sense. I mean, there is, they do talk about it, but I feel like it's not a, um, and maybe this is another challenge with it, it's not quite a through line that yeah. you really feel like it gets a ton of emphasis in the play. It's just sort of stated that he's like, well, I, I can't marry this woman. She's, she's not of the right, but doesn't have the right breeding. Yeah. But it's like, okay, sure. Like, But anyway, I interrupted you. Please continue. Well, my, my question to you on this was, do you think that part of what makes Bertram singularly unsympathetic to a modern audience is that in our more modern, more egalitarian society, 
that kind of snobbery is much more unattractive than maybe it would have been in Shakespeare's day when maybe it would have been a totally logical objection. Yeah. Well, I think we've seen this a couple times in Shakespeare's plays where he's played with the idea of people jumping their social position. And I think it is something of a trope in some of these plays and used for dramatic action. And I don't think he's entirely unsympathetic to the idea that one can transcend one's lower social status. But yeah, I think that that's part of it is, you know, modern audience is going to be, I think, a little bit more repulsed by that. But I think the other thing, though, that is probably at work here is looking at Bertram's behavior towards other women in the play, which is simply to uh, seduce them and leave them and pursue his own ends above all else. In some ways, what's amusing about the move that Helena pulls against him, both at the beginning by basically getting the king on her side and selecting Bertram for marriage, and then also at the end, obviously, with the plot contrivance, is that she's in an inferior social position, and she's a woman, and she's somehow able to use all the traditional instruments of power and class authority and royal prerogatives to bend Bertram, who has more advantages than her in the relative social gender hierarchy, and she's able to, to win against Bertram in this kind of contest of wills. So in that sense, that might be also appealing to certain viewers in an affirmative sense. But I think that that's bringing a lot, I think, and I think probably is true at Shakespeare's time as well, to see somebody invert the social order right. and kind of flip things around. I think the challenge is that we're imparting a lot more logic and like clarity of interpretation to this play than I think might actually exist in the text itself. There's a lot of things that this play has and a lot of really interesting ideas, but I'm not sure that the tonal inconsistencies really allow for it to become mm -hmm. fully or to fully explore these ideas. And I think the characters becoming flatter and the mechanistic qualities of plot prevent some of these ideas from spilling forth and really becoming what the play is about, quote-unquote. Well, I think that actually that raises an important secondary question that is, I think, both separate to, but also very much related to this who's the villain question, which is, what is the problem that the play is about? Because I think, you know, this is, as I think you mentioned earlier, this is one of the, quote, problem plays, along with Trials and Precedent, Measure for Measure, the other two, which we talked about very recently on the pod. And you can sort of see that in this one in a way. And I think it's mostly present in the somewhat ambivalent tone, I think, of the play. But unlike Troilus and Cressida, where I think it's pretty clear exactly what the problem is, right? Which is the stuff about war and honor and the, and love and the sort of, declared falseness in that play's perspective of those ideas, mm -hmm. right? Like, you, you know what ideas he's exploring in that play. Yes. Measure for measure, I think, it's not clear what the underlying problem is or what the actual operation of the plot problem is, but the plot problem is very clear, right? That's about this stuff about... Hypocrisy, sex, sex in the public square, yeah, moral order. order. Yeah, yeah. But, but it, all, it all comes down to the very clear 
Angelo, Isabella, Claudio situation. Yes. Right? Like, you know what the operative forces are, even if it's, I think, as a result of execution, really not so clear what to make of it. Mm -hmm. This play, I'm not really sure what the actual problem is. I mean, the, the closest that I could get was that it's just kind of about unrequited love and the fundamental unfairness that people fall in love with people who don't love them back. But that doesn't seem like it's a big enough or interesting enough problem to demand this kind of treatment. So I don't know. What, what yeah. do you make of that? I, so I, I think my reaction to it, so I, I, I can, I can understand cause I don't think it, it fully succeeds at making its point to the degree to which I read it and derived what the problem is. It's something that actually goes back to our conversation about Romeo and Juliet and the way in which love and social order and marriage are all closely intertwined and sometimes at odds, particularly love versus the need for order and clarity and (laughs) peace as a result of that, and too much catering to the individual will or to people that refuse to uphold the rulings and edicts and standards. And in this case, that's sort of exemplified by the king, right? It's like, sure, it's um, Helena is trying to upset the social order by, to upset it to a certain degree by marrying Bertram, but she gets the king on her side. And I think that there's an aspect of this play, which is sort of underscoring that Bertram is kind of in the wrong here and is running away from responsibility, is behaving badly, and isn't really a serious adult yet, and he needs to be broken mm-hmm. and channeled back into the relationship that he was set up for and he needs to fulfill and consummate, basically. So I, I suppose that there's this sort of idea of marriage in this play as and love and sort of lust as things that are closely related and i think it kind of goes back to the the clown that the countess keeps in her court lavash who talks about it's better to marry than to burn which she's taking i think from one of paul's epistles in the bible this idea that you know you need to have marriage as a way to prevent people from sinning and doing stupid things because of you know uh, like <laughs> turbo charged right. libido yeah it's another I mean, I, I think you, you're right to call it Romeo and Juliet. I think it, it also is something we've seen in other plays, I mean, including in Othello to some degree, mm-hmm. of lust and human sexuality as a very destructive force, mm-hmm. right? And yeah, in this play, marriage, and not, I mean, marriage in the proximate, but I think social order and hierarchy in maybe a, a more macro sense right. as things that channel and constrain and maybe even render positive these things that that in other contexts or or unrestrained can be very negative yeah i mean i guess one of the questions we were talking about measure for measure which is very much a play about efforts to restrict sex in the public square and just restrict the ability of i mean like one of the main sets of characters in measure for measure is the guy and his uh, betrothed and they claudio claudio and and I forget her name, but essentially Claudio is imprisoned and set to be beheaded because he knocked up his fiance before the paperwork was formally filed with the clerk of the city, essentially. And so you end up, there's something interesting about the relationship of these two plays, because Measure for Measure 
is kind of suggesting the dangers of being too legalistic and disdaining the human, human element. The human element of love, life, sexuality, and you need to be a little bit more pragmatic and understanding. I mean, that play is also coming from the place that there are too many houses of prostitution and there's too much hypocrisy around these issues, and you can go the other way too. But but the fundamental message of measure for measure is kind of a, a humanistic take on a lot of these issues that like life is messy and complex. This play isn't really taking so much the other side of the coin, in my view, but it is sort of stressing that, oh yeah, these these institutions have a good role to yeah, play. Yeah, it seems like well. it is operating as the other half of the argument in, in some right. way. Right. And I think the character of Bertram speaks to that, right? Because regardless of how he gets catfished ultimately in the final act of the play, and regardless of the fact that he's basically forced into a marriage that he does not want at the beginning, you see his behavior with Diana and his efforts to woo the courtier's daughter at the end when Mm -hmm. he thinks Helena is dead and that he's free to marry. Uh, This is a guy who's making a lot of promises that he has no intent of really cashing his reputation as a sort of a Lothario around the camp. So I mean, you, a, you might you might disagree with this, Will. I, I, I'm interested to know if you do or not. I, I, one thing that was interesting to me on this topic with Bertram is, to me, there's there's a real sense that he kind of just can't control himself. Yes. Right? I, you know, there's the whole thing with Diana and the ancestral ring. And, I, I mean, let me just read what he says about it, right? So, basically, Bertram is soliciting Diana, and Diana's like, okay, I'll, I'll essentially, I'll let you sleep with me if you give me your ring. And, of course, she's been put up to this by Helena, and that's because Helena knows that this ring that Bertram has is basically his most prized possession. What Helena says about it is, A ring the county wears that downward hath succeeded in his house from son to son, some four or five descents since the first father wore it. This ring he holds in most rich choice, yet in his idle fire to buy his will, it would not seem too dear how e'er repented after. So then when Diana asks Bertram for the ring, Bertram replies, It is an honor longing to our house, bequeathed down from many ancestors, which were the greatest obloquy in the world to me to lose. Diana essentially responds, Well, my virginity and my honor and my reputation is that ring to me. So you have to give this to me. Mm. Essentially, like, we have to both give up this valued thing. And Bertram replies, Here, take my ring. My house, my honor, yea, my life be thine, and I'll be bid by thee. So you can see that Bertram, or at least to me it seems like Bertram, places great value on this ring, on this heirloom of his house, right, of his family. (laughs) And yet, even though he holds it so dear to himself, he can't, hold himself back like he can't restrain himself from pursuing sex with diane right this very very ephemeral ultimately you know for him ultimately meaningless right Right. in in, meaningless in the sense that he has no intentions of marrying diana right no so i think it gets to a sense of bertram's lust and i think by extension lust in general being something that leads Bertram and other people to do things that they know are ill-advised even in the moment in which they're doing them and therefore the need to control that verge. Yes, I think that's right. And, and I think it also suggests and maybe gives the lie to a certain degree to this whole discussion of class as sort of the pretext for 
maybe why he doesn't want to marry. I think he's against marrying in general at the outset or against marriage in general at the outset because he wants to go off to the wars, sow some oats, Mm -hmm. engage in all sorts of behavior that young men at court can get away with and maybe come back and marry a nice girl, but basically probably continue to behave in more or less the same way regardless. And in some ways, Helena represents the premature tying down of all of those things and the onset of maturity and adulthood and having to take life a little bit more seriously and also not even getting the benefit to some degree of having a high-class partner that fits in with the social milieu to which he's experienced. But I, I guess in that sense, there's sort of a journey that he is going on if you take the more didactic side of the play seriously. And I know you probably have some thoughts on that, the journey of this character, Bertram, and and whether or not you think that arc works ultimately. Yeah, well, my thought is, and I think you've you've pretty well summarized it to some degree, right? I, I think that, to me, the best way to make sense of this play is as being about the education of Bertram, right? And that, that it's a play about, and, and this is where, I mean, I know uh, maybe you can speak more to this, but like, I know you have a big issue with the B-plot, right? The mm-hmm. parolis domain, right? Parolis being exposed as being this cowardly, braggadocious, unworthy figure. To me, that does make sense as being in thematic unity with what's going on with Bertram and Helena, because I feel like it's suggesting that what the play is about is that Bertram starts off having very poor judgment about people, undervaluing Helena, overvaluing Mm. Parolis, and needing to be educated so that he then will come back, acknowledge ultimately his faults, and marry Helena. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know that it completely works in the end. You know, the resolution certainly is not a resolution of he falls to his knees and acknowledges that he's been wrong all along, right? It's, it's not like that. Yeah. You know, right up until the end, right up until the very end, he's still moving in this direction of he lies about giving the ring to Diana and about getting the other ring from Diana, you know? So it doesn't quite resolve in that way. But then at the same time, I kind of feel like there is a lot of ambivalence in this play about vice, virtue, mm-hmm. how and whether people change, so it feels somewhat within keeping of the tone of the play to have that sort of ambivalence at the, mm-hmm. at the end. Uh, but what, what do you think about that? Uh, do, do, are you compelled by that reading or do I, you feel I, like there's something else going on? Here I, think, I think I am compelled by that reading and I think that that's where we're meant to end up with a purely textual reading of what happens in a sort of plot level, right? I think that is sort of the direction things are meant to go. I think um, the B-plot, to a certain extent, I just think is underdeveloped and sort of comes out of nowhere. It's not really entirely clear why (laughs) it really needs to happen, per se, other than you have your comedic characters and you need to do something with them to make people Mm -hmm. laugh and engage in outrageous behavior. But that's more of a criticism of sort of the writing and plotting and how there wasn't really enough foreshadowing or sort of... uh, laying out the B-plot is something that 
is kind of present from the beginning. I, I felt like the play is a little bit uneven in that regard. But I guess the main thing, I turn back to this this question, and you, you brought it up with the basically the last five minutes of the play. You know, Bertram is still lying almost to the very end, and he doesn't have a big speech where he repents. The closest he comes is like, I guess if she can prove it, then I'll marry her, or if like I'll I'll be I'll be faithful, which isn't really a compelling endorsement that the play's title promises. And I think the play's title is meant to be somewhat sardonic, that all's well that ends well. It's not entirely clear that things do end well. They end well in this sort of sense that Bertram ultimately gets his comeuppance. But it, does it really end well in terms of the moral journey feeling like it's earned and has produced genuine repentance? Definitely not, in my view. I think that's true, and I, I wonder if part of what's going on here is that we're not necessarily supposed to view the moral redemption of Bertram as the important mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and this is, I think, kind of what I'm trying to get at when I talk about the ambivalence of the play and, and what I view is, I, I mean, there's like an almost melancholy tone to it at, at points. And I think that thing with the ring is is a great example of that, where it feels like like that a positive resolution is not necessarily the resolution of Bertram is going to be happy and Helen is going to be happy right. and they're going to be happy together for the right. rest of time. Right. It's more that the societal order, and I don't even mean, I don't mean societal order in like the hierarchy yeah. right, and the social hierarchy is upheld. It's more like the characters end in a place that maybe most maximizes their ability to live within society in a in an acceptable way mm -hmm. and not do compromising or immoral things yeah and like that's the ending well like the ending well isn't happily ever after right it's maintaining some kind of it's minimizing harm maybe yeah. I, I yeah. don't know I, I i haven't articulated this that well but yeah no, I, I see what you're saying i think that if I were to rewrite this play to try and improve the arc, I can see two ways of stressing that point a little bit more clearly, perhaps, than, than where Shakespeare is going with this. One is if you made this sort of a dark comedy where it's actually not that important that Helena is virtuous in it at all. I mean, you could make her slightly wild-eyed and crazy on the one hand, but you can also portray... Bertram, as he's portrayed in the text, where he's kind of a cad, kind of a callow youth, not really responsible, and he's kind of getting his comeuppance, and it's just sort of dark comedy at the end, which is two characters that aren't especially likable and aren't necessarily... You don't need there to be really a hero in this play. It's about two people getting locked into... Um, you know, actually, Gone Girl reminds me of this to a certain extent, right, with Ben Affleck and Rosamund Pike, where without sort of going into egregious spoilers, they sort of end up in a place at the end where neither can really dispose of the other, and they're kind of trapped in this marriage that might be preferable in some sense to the two of them killing each other or one of them killing the other in some fashion, and it's all premised on lies and deceit and so forth. But there's sort of an amusement in that, right? Which is this play, you know, is sort of all about being faithful and sort of the importance of marriage and all of these things. Gone Girl has a lot of that too, with, you know, main character being unfaithful, the wife being crazy, ultimately. 
but it ends up reaffirming the marriage part of the story, even if right. everything else is not great and the characters aren't especially likable or sympathetic in their own right. And so there's a sort of um, cynical, dark humor associated with this storyline that I can see. And I think that if you made some changes to it and cast it appropriately, you could end up with this comedy where you're not really um, meant to feel all that bad for anyone or root for anyone in particular. You're sort of setting up a, a situation in which like the resolution is there and uh, maybe you have a sympathetic guy play Bertram, but you also have him engage in all the bad behavior and, and behave as yeah. the typical cat and then he's he gets his comeuppance. So like I, I can see a way to make this work perhaps a bit better if I do say so myself, dear listeners, than Shakespeare. But that's not where it quite lands. I think there's still the need to arrive at a conventional ending that ambivalence and ambiguity aside still seems like the stereotypical happy ending. That was my read of this play, is that it sort of gets bent mechanistically into an ending that seems like it's going to be satisfying and happy for the casual theater goer. And for those who want to pry a little bit beneath the surface, you can right. see some of the other issues that are, that are very much present in the text. You think this is a happier marriage than Hermia and Demetrius? I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know that I've got a good answer to that one. I'm not sure either. That that's the other marriage that we've seen in Shakespeare where I, I just remember being like, "This is not. This is not going to last. This is not going to go well for anyone." Yeah, I, I sense that. I I sense that there will be infidelity will be a problem in this marriage, yes. and possibly yes. also some children yes. out of wedlock. So, Maury, I think you've got some repeat guests. But two, one last thing I wanted to say about this, Will, is, and on the subject of that ambivalence, I guess part of why I feel like that is part of the artistic endeavor of Shakespeare here is because I feel like the play evidences that sort of ambivalence also in the way it talks about other things. And there's a, like, there's a sense here that virtue and vice are intermixed, right? There's this thing of, Bertram treats Helena badly, but then he's also viewed as a war hero of a sort in France, right? Or in Italy, I'm sorry. And so, you know, there's this sense of like admixture of good and bad and of there not being anything that's like really unalloyed, good or bad in some sense. Maybe, you know, that might seem a little half-baked, I'm not sure, but do, do you see where I'm coming from? I can, see, I, can see where, I can see where you're coming from. I mean, I think that, Part of just recognizing the complexities of human nature is realizing that people might have virtues in one area and uh, not in others. And I, I think that's something we've seen reflected through the comments of characters. It reminds me of this wonderful quote from Lawrence of Arabia, your favorite movie. The greatest movie, movie ever made. Where Alec Guinness, playing King Faisal or Prince Faisal, says, Young men make wars, and the virtues of war are the virtues of young men, courage and hope for the future. Then old men make peace, and the vices of peace are the vices of old men. Mistrust and caution, it must be so. So there's something to be said for this tragic view of human nature, but it's also a positive view of human nature in a way. Somebody at a certain stage of life may lack emotional maturity, but they're capable, perhaps even because of that, the lack of instinct for self-preservation, the sort of desire to live in the moment, that can lead people to make incredibly heroic sacrifices and undertake the impossible. And perhaps that's sort of what 
Bertram is doing. Similarly, Bertram is also a Lothario who's chasing pretty much every woman that he comes across right. in the text. And that's also a vice of young men. And similarly, there's also issues on the other side of the, the coin here, undoubtedly. We don't spend quite as much time with the older characters, but clearly they have some issues as well. So Yeah. Will, before we transition to the rankings, and I'm very interested to hear where you ultimately place this play, but I did want to just take a moment to revisit perhaps, frankly, the most important thing we talk about on this podcast, which is the unified theory of Shakespeare's expanded universe. So uh, may I present two, in fact, nay, three arguments building on our theory. Imagine, listeners, imagine me standing at a chalkboard with like, big clouds exploding out of my head while I draw diagrams and explain things to you. One, we did not talk about this last time when we discussed Othello, but I did want to note that in Othello, we see the reappearance of none other than Gratiano, the vengeful Christian who wants to kill Shylock in the Merchant of Venice. So we can, in fact, conclude that Othello is in the same Venice as Shylock, but perhaps some years later. Mm. That is point one. Point two, in this play, one, the widow Capulet and her daughter Diana, clearly an offshoot from the Capulets of Verona who have migrated to Florence. And then on the other hand, even more compellingly, the two lords who play the trick on Parolus to convince Bertram that Parolus is unworthy are named Dumaine. Clearly this is in the year after Love's Labor's Lost when the four men, including Dumaine, have gone off and have to learn to be better people. And he has found himself with his brother, apparently, in Italy. So, you heard it here. The Shakespeare Expanded Universe continues and grows. Indeed. I, I look forward to uh, a Marvel versus DC crossover with his English history plays any day yes, now. Yes. <laughs> Will, all that being said, I, I think we've talked through this one pretty thoroughly where do you rank it uh so tough tough one to rank partially because i sense that the promise of this play is better than what is actually delivered and obviously i gave you my rewrite take on it but i mean i think it ultimately falls short of obviously the top tier and i i don't think it's as successful as the most successful comedies however like measure for measure and like Love's Labor's Lost for me, and like Troilus and Cressida as well, I found it to have compelling ideas that I enjoyed thinking about and talking about, perhaps more than the play itself. But still, there's, there's something here that's really good. It just didn't really quite take shape for me. So I'm actually going to place it more or less in the middle of the pack overall. I'm going to put it, um, I'm going to put it above Troilus and Cressida and below Henry VI Part One. Okay, so that's, that will slot in as your... It's my new number 17. Okay. Uh, and who would you anoint the MVP of this play? Oh, let's see. So in this case, I think I'm going to go with... I think I'm going to go with Helena. She sort of sets everything in motion. She's got some good speeches at the beginning. You have to admire the pluckiness, even if her personality falls off towards the end, just because everything's focused on resolving the plot right. neatly with a bow tied on it. But Helen is my MVP. Uh, what about you? Where does this one fall and who's your favorite choice of character? So I think I have some similarly 
un, not unclear, but some similarly conflicting feelings about this one. I think as a thematic whole, I think it's more successful than Measure for Measure or Troilus and Cressida, the two other prophet plays. You know, I think it holds together better, and I think the messaging is more, not the messaging, I shouldn't say, but the... Thematic unity of the... Yeah, yeah, is, is more, is better constructed, mm -hmm. basically. And yet, you know, basically my reaction when I got to the end of the play was just kind of a shrug. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't feel significant. You know, it, it feels like it's well-constructed... In, in some sense, I think of the comedies, maybe one of the best constructed comedies, mm -hmm. honestly. Mm -hmm. But not important and not that entertaining. And it, it's certainly, you know, I could say it's certainly going to fall somewhere in the Trolls and Cressida number 14 to 20 range. Mm -hmm. Whereas like Trolls and Cressida, I think it works better than Trolls and Cressida thematically. And yet Trolls and Cressida is so much more interesting to me. Mm. So it's just, it's it's hard for me to to measure those things. I think, ultimately, I don't think I could put it lower than Merry Wives of Windsor. I mean, I do think there's more going on here than in Merry Wives of Windsor, even though I think Merry Wives of Windsor is more entertaining. Mm -hmm. So, all that being said, decision time. Oh boy, I think it's gonna go at number, I think it's actually also gonna be number 17 for me, that would put it, however, in my context, between As You Like It and Measure for Measure. Mm. And then my MVP, similarly, I, I don't find there to be a real, a real standout in this play. I think I'm going to go with the Countess, mm -hmm. who, you know, kind of a great role for an aging diva of yes. the screen or stage. You know, very morally recondite, some good lines some funny lines. So, you know, in the absence of, I think, a clear choice, I'm going to go with the Countess. Okay. And, Will, before we go, do you have a recommendation for our listeners this week? I do, James. I do. I have been reading the biography of James Baker, the former Secretary of State, Treasury Secretary, Chief of Staff, four-time presidential campaign manager, George H.W. Bush's best friend, figure in the Reagan years and Ford years. And the book is called The Man Who Ran Washington. It's by Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, who are two journalists who happen to be married. And the book is great. It's a tale of Shakespearean power plays and almost a manual of uh, how to succeed and sometimes how to fail in politics really compelling chronicle of one individual's career and sort of rise and fall, the friends and enemies they made along the way, the achievements and some of the failures. Just a really interesting portrait of an era of politics and foreign policy that I think is within memory for, for many, many, many people, but also feels like a world away sometimes to us today. But yeah, really compellingly well-constructed and really does make you think a lot about the nature of power and what makes people succeed in the vocation of politics. Give us the recommendation one more time. That's The Man Who Ran Washington by Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. No relation to Jim Baker. And that's our show. 
Next time on Bard Flies, we'll be talking about another contestant for the title of Worst Parent in English Literature when we discuss King Lear. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at Bardflies Podcast.